Oh, sh**. Yeah, that's the only cuss word that's going to get bleeped. Listener discretion is advised. It's time to look outside of yourself and your own struggles and gain some new perspectives because these folks are going there. Taboo Topics are back on the table. Hey, I'm Joe. I'm LeJohn. And I'm Matt. And welcome back to the Going There podcast. And today, where we're going to go is into a discussion about capitalism. Uh, There's a lot of misinformation out there about how capitalism actually works, what socialism and other types of societies actually entail, and what all of those things have to do with living our everyday lives as Americans. And here to talk to us today is somebody who knows a lot about money. He's a lifetime financial advisor, Mr. Tom Hill. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Hello, Matt. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hey there, Tom. Tom, before we jump into uh, the discussion, give us a snapshot of who you are and and what your life has entailed as far as the financial game. Well, um, I started as a financial advisor back in 1982 uh, when I was just a kid. Before most of the people in this room were born. We're born. That's right. One year before I was born, actually. (laughs) I was alive. I loved you. I thought you were the best in the game. Um, and, uh, I worked for a number of different firms, some that, that I left and moved to others and, and others that acquired firms that I was working for. So in spite of being like 15 years at one place, there were five different firms that I worked for. And I finally got tired of that. And in 2006, I opened my own shop. And I thought it would be, you know, me and my desk and my computer and my telephone. And uh, gradually it grew. And so we've just recently, I uh, uh, sold my interest in the the firm, which is called Lighthouse Advisors, to my business partner. We've got a dozen employees, of which now I'm one instead of being an owner. And uh, enjoying that quite a bit because uh, I get to work from home and and uh, spend most of the day talking on the phone or over Zoom to my friends. We tricked you into doing a podcast to get free financial advice. This is fantastic. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't figure that out. Oh shit! Hold on, I should have said that at the end. I was that was supposed to be the. the... I'm actually kind of used to that, Matt. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> I bet. So, have you seen uh, major changes or trends in that world, or is it more just about the market and how it changes? No, there there have been uh, real changes in that business. You know, when I got started, you you spent your first four months studying for your license. And if you didn't pass the test, you got fired. Fortunately, I passed the test. During those four months, you're supposed to build a list and then start smiling and dialing. And so that's what I did. Yeah. One day I got a hold of somebody who said, you know, you guys are always calling me, trying to sell me stuff. Why, you know, why didn't anybody ever say, hey, can I come out and um, get to know you a little bit and find out what you need? And the light bulb went on and I said, okay, how about if I come out and have a cup of coffee and talk <laughs> about what you need? And, and that kind of changed my life. Um, and that's and- how you invented financial advising. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was I was the first one. And and then and then Al Gore comes along and invents the internet. So, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it really has changed from being a sales job to being an advice job. And you know, often I'm as much a social worker as I am a financial advisor or, you know, looked at another way, a successful financial advisor has to be uh, a good uh, social worker and counselor too. Obviously, what what we've seen is this big push of anything that seems anti-capitalist. It angers people who don't want to hear anything else because they think you're trying to destroy America. I think a, a lot of people also have a misconception that capitalism and democracy are the same thing. They're not necessarily the same thing. The governmental body is not the exact same necessarily as the economic. So capitalism, Tom, how would you define capitalism at its core? I think at its core, it's really about who owns the shit. Yeah. You know, it's that's that's what it's about. The official definition is, you know, who owns the means of production. And that comes that goes back to when we were primarily a manufacturing economy or, a uh, you know, uh, and, and even before that. But it's, you know, who owns the various things that make up the economy in communism the government owns all that in socialism the government owns a lot of it and or they manage it and disperse it at their yeah. discretion sure sure and then you know capitalism is you know okay people can own their home people can own their business they can start a business they can own parts of other people's business which is where people like me come in so, okay, so how they sell it to us growing up in school, LeJohn, how were you taught? This is what capitalism is. This is what makes America great. Your chance to do it on your own and get it on your own. You know, the, the bootstraps type type thing. That's how it was taught to me. That's how it was. That's how I understood it. Your opportunity to go out there and do it and get it. And, you know, it's 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 the free market. You, know? you work as hard as you want. You mm -hmm. reap all of those benefits. Exactly. Nobody can put a cap on how rich you become. When you have those three jobs, you can put a new antenna on top of your trailer. You better believe it. Joe, yeah. how about you? Yeah, I guess same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Looking for that antenna. <laughs> We're all trying to get that second antenna. And that's, and that's right, as long as everybody has access to the same bootstraps. Now that's where the problem came in. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I just had uh, socks with holes in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are I, these I boots? Just, I just saw something where somebody had posted about how they they paid off their two hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt in three years, and you know if I can do it, so can you. And you am reading about this and say, well, and and my grandparents gave us a condo. Yeah, and we decided to rent it out and live with with my parents so that we could take that rental money and put that. Well, yeah, hey, that's yes, like you just need to work hard and be a child of rich parents. Yeah, I mean, isn't that how it works for everybody? Yeah. They call that the lucky sperm club. I tried to look up this quote and I could not find who actually said it. But I remember in my sociology class in college, because I circled this quote, and I'm like, that's brilliant. Somebody, and Tom, you might know the answer to this, said, I have the secret to wealth. 
It is inheritance. <laughs> I used to work at this studio in New York, and we would have people come in all the time. And the one guy promoting his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, he was like, you're an idiot if you're going to get a job as a doctor or a lawyer. You just need to take $400 million and invest it into silver. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, my dumbass has been going to work. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I've been waking yeah. up every goddamn day. You know, speaking of sociology and psychology, Karl Marx, the quote that's attributed to him is he says, capitalism, teach a man to fish, but the fish he catches aren't his. They belong to the person paying him to fish. And if he's lucky, he might get paid enough to buy a few of the fish for himself. That unfortunately is kind of what capitalism is at its core. And I think, again, when we go back to the Rockefellers and, and some of these folks, the ratios of wealth to the poor were different. The middle class was growing. There was more opportunity. It was like, you know, when consumerism really picked up after World War II, and it was like, oh, now you can buy these things for your house. It's not about saving up for this one big thing. It's, it's we can all afford more. But capitalism, much like democracy or any kind of government that's about freedom and, and, and free, free will and choice, is solely reliant on the people in power to have some kind of goodness in them. As in a little bit of greed, as Gordon Gecko would say, greed is good. A little bit of greed is good. A little bit of greed gets you ahead. I'm okay with greed on a micro scale. Greed to the point where you're like, I can't lose $15 on you know this stock, so I'm going to lay off 5,000 people. Uh, that's, not, that's not okay. That's not okay, greed. You know, going back to the fish, um, you know, it, it goes to ownership. It's, you know, who owns, who owns the shit? Well, you know, this is America, Tom. A, Everyone a, can own anything. LeJohn could go out tomorrow and buy a company, right? That's damn not right. <laughs> if, he, if, he found, if he found access to the capital. And that door is blocked. Yeah, the, the fisherman, to get his own fish, would have to be able to buy a boat or work for somebody who is beneficent enough to actually pay a living wage. So there's, there is an assumption of some amount of goodwill. And I think that's where we get into what's going on with, you know, if it's, if it's unbridled capitalism that, that government should have no part of, it leads to plutocracy and oligarchy. Tom, in your opinion, did it all go to shit with the start of like the Rockefellers and Carnegie and people like that? We've gone in cycles, and that's a good example of where the concentrated ownership and concentrated wealth works against the needs of you know many folks. And although those those people did turn around and give back a lot of money, yeah. like all the Carnegie libraries and all that, there's an assumption of some kind of beneficence that needs to be there. But that's morphed into trickle down, <laughs> and <laughs> which, which I prefer to call pee down. Yeah, pretty uh, much. <laughs> I peed on your head. What the hell's your problem? What are you complaining about? <laughs> you said you were dry. Did not enough yeah. get in your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> For the people who are employed in a job where they earn more than what they spend, you know, you can build ownership you can build wealth through ownership 
but it, and it's one thing to say, well, don't spend everything you make. Well, that's true. And if you're earning a hundred grand, you can afford to pay fifteen hundred bucks a month for your house or for your rent, and uh, you know maybe another five hundred bucks a month on your student loans and all that. But if you are earning thirty thousand, an extra ten by you know slinging drinks or or waiting tables. It's really tough to build that capital. And that's that's where a lot of the, you know, sometimes I, I think people who are screaming socialism forget that there are a lot of people who are just getting by. They're not extravagant. Well, They're but those not... are lazy people, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah all... <laughs> Can we debunk some things? Like none of us want to work our asses off for somebody who doesn't want to work to get ahead, right? I mean, that's what they think socialism is and not socialism, but socialism ideals within a capitalist economy because we already have it. It's already public school systems. There's already social security. We already have these things put in place. It's to take care of the people who need help, like the elderly, like the sick, like children. It's not about, you know, this guy wants to lay on a couch and smoke crack all day. So let's pay him money. And that's what. They think, but it's funny because a lot of the people screaming, that's socialism, are the ones who are working three jobs and don't have two nickels to rub together. Wait, is that job yeah. over no laying on the couch? And <laughs> <laughs> well, Tyler's taking it's that mostly job mostly right volunteer now. work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you're a volunteer crack smoker, that's fine. Yeah, that's you contributing to the community. <laughs> we all have to do our part. So we're, we're talking about kind of this uh, – benevolence within the system to make it work. So let's talk about when that doesn't happen. You're the owner of a media channel and you say, we don't want to show this because we don't agree with it. ISIS wants to put a commercial on and we're like, we won't run that. But then all of a sudden it gets ratings and they're like, well, the advertisers like it. So we're going to do it anyway. Morals and ethics go out the window when the dollar comes into play. There's not a lot of people who are willing to stand up to the mighty dollar and go, you can't buy my loyalty. You can't buy my integrity. And if they do, they are crucified by somebody higher up than them. Yeah. Everything and everyone has a price, if you ask me. LeJohn, what's your price? What's my price? Ten bucks. All depends on what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Most cases, it's ten bucks. <laughs> There's a story about the guy out in Vegas who sees this beautiful woman and says, hey, would, would you sleep with me for a million dollars? And she goes, no. Oh, yeah, I guess. And he says, well, how about 50 bucks? And she slaps him and says, oh, what kind of woman do you think I am? And the guy says, we've already established that. Now we're just talking about price. <laughs> exactly. Amen. Exactly. And, and it, you know, that that's really how a lot of this, this works. The fear of quote unquote socialism is much more of a politically motivated scare tactic than it is a reality. Let's talk about how capitalism is failing. I think a good litmus test for capitalism is the ratio of salaries between the CEOs and the average workers. So the exponential differences in CEOs to the average employees you know, it grows every year and it, and it keeps getting worse. So according to the Economic Policy Institute, CEO compensation has grown 940% since 1978. The CEO salary has grown 940%. The typical worker compensation 
has only risen 12% in that time. And it's not like, oh, they were given 940 extra dollars. 940% for the CEOs, 12% for the employees. So what used to be a decent ratio, you you had at one time CEOs were making 12 times what the average worker was making. You know, I'm okay with that. When the CEOs are now making 265 times with the average worker. So a ratio between the average worker um, and the CEO in 2018 in the US. First of all, the US is like at the top of the list at 265 times in, in, in 2018. And I imagine it's grown significantly even since then. The second closest is India, which is sad that we're beating India. Because when you think about India, you think about old money and you think about the caste system and all these things. So the second closest is India at 229 times. That is a huge issue. And let's go back a little bit, you know, where the quote unquote middle class really started to grow. And that's the immediate post-World War II period. And you had this boom throughout the suburbs that brought about people like me, the baby boomers. The problem there is that that was uneven. It was, it was unequal. You know, you, you can't look at our economic history without looking at racism. It was the policy of the federal government when they were providing money, government money, it was a policy to redline and to only lend money in white neighborhoods. And that policy continued on until the 60s. But that is one reason that people of color and, you know, single women or, you know, women who were divorced or widowed that also had restrictions on being able to own property and get credit fell behind. And we created an underclass that was earning a similar wage to middle class, but unable to grab that ownership which ultimately builds long-term wealth. Yep, long-term wealth, generational wealth, fell behind and stayed behind. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. He's, he said it was like done in like the 70s, so you're fine now. Oh, okay. Do we <laughs> want to go there? I yes. think we should. <laughs> yeah. I think it's time. There's nothing holding you back from being a baron and a, a tycoon of business and wealth. Oh, man. Hey, John, run the first five miles of this marathon carrying a backpack with 100 pounds mm-hmm. and then take the backpack off you're now you're now even with the rest of us, and right? we'll certainly be judging you for being yeah. behind. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, and that's exactly yeah. what it is, man. We weren't even invited to the meet. We weren't even invited to the track meet. Um, we we were somewhere else, and the race was going. They shot the gun off and everything, and they did laps around the track, and then they said, "Oh, hey guys!" Like four months later, <laughs> "Hey, we're having yeah. a track meet. You 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 guys want to run? Oh man, we're fast. We 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 can even do long distance. You name it. Let's go." You're lazy. Yeah. Why weren't you at the track meet we didn't invite you to? Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's right doing that volunteer work on your couch again. <laughs> so there was a significant period of wage growth that you know a number of people got to participate in and built what is considered to be the middle class. Since then, and really this started in the in the 1980s, the the tax changes that initially came about then have exacerbated this inequality. You know, now we we treat everyone equally bad. Uh, that's that's a little overly cynical for me, but, <laughs> you know, uh, even for me. That's when that wage gap really started. As the middle class was growing in the post-war period, 
productivity in the industry grew significantly and wages grew with it. The workers received a reasonable share. You know, there was a period where productivity was relatively flat during the inflationary 70s, and then productivity started to pick up again. But wages did not keep pace with that pickup in productivity. The benefits of the increase in productivity rose to the top of the heap and to shareholders. So for, you know, for those of us who were lucky enough to be able to either be the beneficiary of some multi-generational wealth or were able to be in jobs where, you know, we didn't have to spend everything we made and therefore were able to buy into that, we're the ones who got at least the crumbs from the table. I, I have an idea that I think would, you know, is at least worth study because I, I don't have the capability to do the the deep economic research. It's It seems to me that, you know, if what you're trying to address is a significant uneven distribution between the high-end salaries and the average worker, corporations significantly benefited from this lower tax rate. And we were uncompetitive with a lot of other countries. You know, one of the most conservative economists that I know said, you know, okay, well, they're talking about taking the tax rate from 21 to 28% on corporations. He said, really, a few years ago, if they had said, you know, we were going to take it down to 28, you know, we'd be popping the champagne corks. So who really thinks that the corporation tax rate was going to stay at 21? I would think that, you know, okay, let's set a floating tax rate that depends on how much of a difference there is between the people at the bottom and the people at the top. If you are paying people so little that they need to get government benefits, government subsidies, tax credits that cost the government money, okay, let the corporation pay that into the government or choose to pay it to the people themselves. So have a higher tax rate, the greater the distribution is that, you know, if, you, if your top end is making 200 times, because it's not just the CEOs, but it's the, the, the people who are aspiring to be CEOs that are executive vice presidents of, you know, in charge of floor sweeping or whatever. <laughs> I could get that job, maybe. <laughs> Looking at it, at it another way, if you were paying people enough that your lowest paid people are actually getting a wage that they can live on and be able to participate in the ownership of the economy. Oh, maybe even the ownership of the company that they're working for. Is that somewhat of a mix, though? Like probably like the first example of a clash and an infusion of capitalism and socialism? It's accepting the fact that we do have government, some government control in our economy. My paycheck gets more than 21% taken out. Just heads up, <laughs> yeah. I have noticed. The airlines and the banks, they get the benefits of socialism when they get bailed out. Right. They're just doing a wink back at each other going, well, we don't want to hear the peons rise up and start talking about wanting to get their fair share. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, it's if, if you look at energy policy, particularly in the last few years, take away the subsidies for all the solar and wind power. But by God, make sure you keep giving the subsidies for, you know, fracking and, and for oil drilling. You know, hey, come on. If you if you have socialism that is benefiting corporations and wealthy individuals 
and then expect everybody else to be capitalist. I, you know, it, it just it just doesn't work that way. You, you're going to have some amount of government involvement. People often talk about how, oh, you know, government bureaucracy messes everything up. And uh, yeah, government bureaucracy is bad. But you know what? Bureaucracy in corporations is the same as bureaucracy in government. Bureaucracy is bureaucracy. And if you have a bureaucratic mindset, you're trying to cover your butt and not take responsibility for decisions and and trying to avoid mistakes. The other side of that coin is the entrepreneurial mindset, which is, yeah, you're going to make mistakes. We're going to take responsibility and we want the benefit of that. The, the government involvement in the economy. I, I was struck by seeing you know someone that had said uh, a number of years ago, hey, keep the government out of my Medicare. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> I got <right>? bad news. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were saying it with a straight face. <laughs> yeah, I feel like people just shouldn't be allowed to voice their opinions that loudly if they don't have any facts. Like, <laughs> Well, then social media wouldn't exist. Come on. <laughs> Which is why I'm off half of it. <laughs> uh, you know, we can't control what they're going to say, but we can at least hopefully laugh at it and point out the uh, absurdity of it. Well, that's the thing. It's it's a good chunk of us understand what's actually happening. There are those of us who aren't truly benefiting from it, and then those who are, and they're the ones telling the other ones, hey, hey, this guy's trying to take away this really good thing you have going. You know, you're going to get that second antenna on your trailer. Like, don't let him take that away from you. Without even doing any kind of, like, research and education and knowledge, like, as far as, like, is this guy really, you know, just just pulling my leg on this shit or anything? Should I Google it or should I get a gun? Yeah. Yeah. One or the other. (laughs) You know, talking about the laziness, it's great when you don't have to do any of your own research. It's great when somebody just, you know, sends you an instant message that has some ridiculous conspiracy website giving you some nonsense about how socialism and baby eaters are destroying America. Yeah. Why do the research for yourself when somebody tees it up for you so nicely? Or, you know, find the media that already agrees with you and then say, oh, I've done my research. Like a horoscope. Well, those are accurate. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, we're going to take ourselves a quick musical break. You are listening to the sounds of Alicia Spurlock. Some awesome songs such as Forever, Breathing Room, Drama, and Passenger. Piano-driven songs. feel like really good feel-good music. This is the best way I think I can really describe it. Awesome person. Truly, truly, truly just a great individual. So enjoy the sounds of Alicia Spurlock. I know the hardest part was waiting To know why Yeah, you know, she kind of sounds like one of those singer-songwriters you'd hear playing at a coffee shop, right? So that's going to pair well with our snack sips and sweets this week, which is Akron Coffee Roasters. How's that coffee tasting? Oh my goodness, delicious. This, what am I drinking right now? I think it's the Ethiopian blend. It has some jasmine flavors with some lime and lemon. 
It's like citrusy. They're based out of Akron, Ohio. They roast their own specialty coffees. They actually provided us with four of these awesome roasts. My Peruvian one here, it's more sweet, savory, sugary. It's got caramel and chocolate. And then a little bit of that like berry and citrus taste. It's wonderful. And if you're into, you know, fair trade coffee and where it's coming from, you can see the country, the region, even the farm, what altitude it's grown at. And what kind of process? Yeah. Well, screw you guys, because I'm over here rocking out with the Congo Kalunga Umpumbi. And I hope I said that right. I already do. You you just (laughs) pronounced an African term in the whitest way I've ever heard. (laughs) That means you've made it. Right. Yeah, I arrived and shit. You know what I mean? But yeah, um, it's got some some cola in it with some thyme and basil and toffee. Lots of flavor. And again, I always say it. I'm not really much of a coffee drinker. But when I do, I can rock out with the Congo. And what's the fourth one? This is a Costa Rica. I haven't had it yet. We're going to have it in a minute. Juicy, sweet, smooth. It's got some berries, some dark chocolate, citrusy. Mm. (laughs) It's Akron Coffee Roasters. (laughs) Also, the owner looks like Prince Eric. (laughs) So um, I love to support these guys because they're doing it the right way. Of course, I'll always support any locally owned business that isn't a giant chain or some corporate thing. But even cooler than that, at the end of 2020, they actually worked to provide local frontline health workers with free coffee and snacks. So they made Akron proud by by being heroes. And I love their website. You can check them out at Akron.coffee. That's for reals. Akron.coffee. Instagram at Akron Coffee Roasters or Facebook at Akron Coffee. Check them out. If you're a coffee lover, especially if you're a coffee snob like me, you're really going to enjoy this. Bougie-ass coffee drinker. Honestly, it is delicious. America does not run on Dunkin'. It runs on Akron Coffee Roasters. Thank you, Akron Coffee Roasters. I want to talk a little bit about Hoovervilles. Like during the Great Depression... Hoover just like refused to give public aid because he believed in the free market. So all of these people who some of them were even white had to um, just build these shanty towns where they were just living in destitution. Like, how is that better than, you know, government bailouts to make sure that people live in houses and aren't committing crimes? Herbert Hoover, by the way, was one of the president's not re-elected for a second term, I think, yeah. for many of those <laughs> reasons. Many, many reasons. Interesting. For many, many reasons. <laughs> the slide into the Great Depression is a study in, you know, how do you do everything wrong? Don't provide any assistance for the people who need it and erect trade barriers so that uh, you're, you're trying to protect our industry um, and all you're really doing is, is shutting the world economy down. I think I I believe that it ties into it. I think when you try to take some kind of zealous morality and turn it into law like prohibition, I think that played into the depression as well. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. That adds up and, and that makes sense and plus and uh, we're seeing and the reason I bring that up is we're seeing that again today when really it's it's some kind of veiled agenda that has nothing to do with morality. But when somebody tries to take something, you know, the abortion thing, for example, that just creates civil unrest and civil unrest turns into what happened at the Capitol, turns into uh, a volatile market. It turns into all of these horrible things that we try to avoid, yet we don't realize we're creating when we do it. That's my opinion. I, I'm not saying – the correlation is documented, but that's my opinion. 
you know, looking at, at the depression and then what was the, you know, ultimately the successful responses to it, which, you know, partially was the New Deal and partially was war, um, sadly Uh-oh. enough. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> what well, no, is I mean, a good for? Uh, everything. Everything. <laughs> Economy. There, there was a lot of, of false there, but, you know, once we, once we got into World War II, that ultimately helped the economy it's you know sadly enough and i hope to hell we don't have to do that again but a lot of what you're seeing today is the dismantling of that society that roosevelt built in the new deal there's you know so much of the protection that we have came about from that mindset that yeah there is a place for um, a centralized response to crises. And it's not even just like, let me help you. Let me hold your hand all the way. It's like FDIC, right? Like keeping your money in your bank safe. Yep. That's something that I don't think you're in the wrong for when the government crashes that the money's taken from your bank. You can't blame somebody for that. That's yeah. That makes me upset. <laughs> <laughs> well, you still have people going, our money should be backed by gold again. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and this this trend towards privatization, I think, is harmful to us in in the long run. I, you know, the worst example of that, I think, is private prisons. When you have a financial incentive to put people behind bars, you're going to put people behind bars, and and that's just that's utterly immoral. You've got private armies, Blackwater. You know, two of their people who murdered civilians get pardoned. A lot of people feel, you know, okay, everything should be done privately. It should not, government shouldn't have a place in that. And, you know, the problem with that argument, I think, was, you know, really brought to light by the the total lack of any sort of coordinated response to the pandemic. We should have had, you know, nationwide testing and contact tracing, but oh no, we'll let the states do that, but we'll make them bid against each other to get the equipment that they need to do it. It's like a a bad stepdad. That was capitalism (laughs) at its finest. That's called profit over people. The, the, The pendulum swings back and forth. And I suspect we have seen the anti-government pendulum swing as far as it's going to go for now. And we'll hopefully swing back and that, you know, that there is some amount of beneficence that then gets put back into society, into the economy. You know, I'm also opposed to it going too far the other way. I don't want full government control. I want to be able to operate my business. I want to be able to participate in the success of uh, some of these companies that are changing the world. Is that socialism? Well, you know, and that's that's the thing. And this is <laughs> this gets back to where the the term socialism is being used as a political cudgel and is not accurately being used. I recall a, a futile Facebook conversation I had with somebody who's aligned with the with the tribe of the of the far right. They had posted something on their wall about, you know, how, how awful this uh, thing that Al Gore is investing in. Uh, he and, and business partners have been developing a uh, computer program which allows for more efficient driving of trucks and uh, therefore, you know, cuts fuel consumption. They say, oh, you know, why aren't they concentrating on making it less polluting? And, you know, I, I pointed out it's 
taking technology that you have and if you can cut down on fuel consumption that way, you don't have to build a brand new engine yet. Or you can at least be saving, you know, some of the the negative impact on the environment until that new engine is there, or until that battery powered truck is available. And one of the responses I got back was, "Oh, you commies are so gullible." that's doing your research yeah it's like you know i've been a freaking stockbroker for 40 years for crying out (laughs) (laughs) and that's what i mean where the word socialism it's been weaponized and it's not been accurately portrayed i mean there is there is involvement of our government in significant places in the economy our national defense is government run. You know, it is possible for the pendulum to swing too far for government involvement as well. So so I, I think we need to be careful to try to stay in that center area of the pendulum, you know. It's like if you're going to turn your heat on all the way to 100 degrees or if you're going to turn your AC on to like 12. Yeah. But maybe you could just do like 60. But But even <laughs> when the pendulum does like balance out, for those who are so far left behind, is there any opportunity for them to catch up? We need to create that opportunity. We need to be aware of our history and how we have failed those people and take proactive steps to change that. And that wouldn't really be a like a, a social program or even a private program. It would benefit both, right? Like if everybody is able to make money and pay for themselves, wouldn't the economy just grow more? Oh, yeah. I mean, because where are they going to spend the money? They're going to spend yeah. the money here, yeah. right? Like you were talking about with that balance, if we solely rely on the government to do it, one, we know they'll fuck it up. When somebody puts something good in place, the next guy will come in and take it out. It is largely going to be dependent on the goodness and morality of individuals. And one of the things I want to talk about is the morality of the billionaire and that of like some of these people who are billionaires multiple times over. I mean, we we might have our first trillionaire within this decade. It's disgusting. And let me talk about why, because there's a lot of people who find that to be an offensive thing. It's like they can earn as much as they want. When you have enough money where you could essentially spend like a million dollars a day and never run out of money, that's gross. There's only so much you need to be taken care of and to take care of your family and still buy a jet and buy a boat. I'm not saying no one should be allowed to buy a private jet. No, fuck it. Buy a jet, buy your boats. They still would never run out of money. So like Jeff Bezos, I think, what was it? His ex-wife or or whoever was like a partial owner of Amazon gave away several billion dollars. Right. Yeah. Mackenzie Scott. Yeah. There's, there's a, and I was just looking for, and I, I can't remember the name, but it's a agreement that uh, a number of billionaires have signed on to, to basically give away their money. But not to their employees. To each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Giving it all away. So in the in her divorce from Jeff Bezos, she received a significant amount of Amazon stock. Amazon has gone up significantly this year. So again, it's the value of ownership. So she has stock or had stock that today is worth roughly $40 billion. But she has given away almost $5 billion of that. 
which is, you know, which is great. But, you know, and that probably makes her the most generous philanthropist. You've got uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett who basically said, you know, by the time I die, I will give everything to charities. Yeah. And, and a lot of these families gave away more than half. And it's not just American billionaires. So, I mean, I think especially American billionaires, that's important. But you the know, communist you, billionaires are also giving yeah. money. <laughs> so Australians, one guy from uh, Tanzania, Nigerian uh, prince, China, Norway. Prince Akeem from Zamunda. Mm-hmm. I, I just I just looked this. It's called the Giving Pledge. Yep, it's a group of of billionaires that are you know have pledged to to give away all their money. How do I sign up to be a recipient? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna have a lottery. The problem is they stone the ones who don't win the lottery. So you're either stoned to death or become a billionaire. Yeah, it's like they hunt you, and if they can't hunt you, the most dangerous game, then you get yeah. <laughs> you get like a thousand bucks. The most dangerous game and the most richest survivor. Right, <laughs> which like, like I said, man, it's just all about getting the access to it, getting an opportunity to be a part of it. You know, and that's the part that, that frustrates me I so I don't know much. what you're talking about. You and I are both playing on the same Monopoly board. Uh-oh. Okay, I see what you did there. Here we go. Now I'm about to go off. So everybody pay attention and listen real close. This is what it's like for those who don't dig it and those who don't really get as far as when uh, people of color or the minorities, if you will, which I can't stand that fucking word, talk about the opportunities and the, the chances that they don't have or never had. The best example I can give is like playing Monopoly, a game that we have all played, a game that we all know. Imagine that we are all playing Monopoly and here I am, the one black dude at the table and I have my piece, you guys have your pieces and everything. Everybody has the same two dice. I have one die. When you guys roll, not only do you have your two dice and have an opportunity to move 12 spaces at the most, I only have an opportunity to move six spaces. You guys can go around, purchase property and and, and all those things that come with Monopoly on the first time around. I have to wait that one time around in order to get my opportunities. Not only do I just have the one dice, sometimes when I roll, the dots are shaded out. That's what it feels like. I will never catch up. I don't care how long we play. We can play Monopoly for 10 years. You'll always have those 12 chances to do more and go further in advance. And the six chances that I have on that one die, maybe that's the best I can do. Well, and I was born with a get out of jail free card in my pocket. Mm. And you have a go straight to jail card. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you do start to get ahead, like, uh, was it Tulsa where it was um, oh, a yeah. very rich black community? Sure. People will. They'll come tear it down. Yeah. And that, and that space is on the board. Yeah. That space. Oh, I rolled tear down your shit. It's yeah. my turn to tear down your shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and this is why it's not enough to say, you know, oh, I'm not racist. And it's, it's not enough to just not be racist. It is crucial that we become anti-racist, that we become aware of the systemic racism that has been in our society and actively address that within ourselves and in society. Because the black community and the underrepresented communities will never get a chance to move forward if we don't stop and give them a hand. Essentially, it's like saying, hey, listen, we're not here to stop you, but we're also not going to help you. That's what saying I'm not racist and then doing nothing is to me. But our country's founded on racism and tobacco. Right. So, yeah, it's deeply ingrained (laughs) and that cotton stuff. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, there was a, a fear incorporated into it all. For instance, I can probably leave today and go get me a student loan that will get me a degree that will never be recognized anyway. 
Because once they see LeJohn Woods on the on the application. Well, they'll think you're French at first. You have a chance. <laughs> right. <laughs> but once they see my name, they actually see my face. Oh, you from West Africa? Right. And yeah. Do you, yeah. Exactly, right. So the student loan, that means shit. I can leave out of here and go get a car loan. The moment I pull off, we already know what happens to the car. If I want to get a house loan or a business loan, you mean something that can actually advance me and do something for you know, my children and their children and so on and so on and so on. Ah, Mr. Woods, I don't. Wait a minute, I just left, and I got the student loan. I just got the car loan. What's what's the problem here? I don't understand it. Oh, you mean you don't want to give me money to for something that can actually advance me and 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 grow from me and mine? You're a risky venture, Mr. Yes, Woods. Yes, I am. We don't know how to say this professionally. Um, <laughs> the color of your skin bothers us. Okay. You could have said that in the first place. <laughs> hey, Karen, Karen, can you step off to the side for a second? Karen, Kevin, Karen, step in here. Karen, Kevin, I just want to, I'm so proud of you for speaking your mind. Take your hood off, take your hood off, you're indoors. <laughs> and they, you know, there has been a lot of progress made in that. You know, redlining is no longer um, legally. It's no allowed, longer but it's legally sanctioned. Public. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, again, part of being anti-racist is to point out, you know, when it happens. I, I get it. You're absolutely right. It is still so much tougher for uh, people of color. It is so much tougher for women. Us white guys have it a lot easier. We don't have it totally easy, but we have a lot more chances. We've got the two or the three dice. Or four. You bet you got three, four. (laughs) Tom, you're giving away white secrets here, dude. Calm down. What? (laughs) It's like Jumanji. There's a magnet under the board. We just moved shit when you guys are looking. Holy shit! It's like that thermostat in the office where it's like you think you're changing the temperature, but it's just like for show. (laughs) Tyler's on the behind the wall going beep boop boop beep. Yeah, yeah. and I'm just like, I'm glad I have choices. The John gets up to take a piss, and I take his boardwalk card and put it in my pocket. Right. And he's like, the fuck? <laughs> These all Baltic avenues? Yeah. <laughs> See, that, that famous Saturday Night Live skit was really true. You know, Eddie Murphy, you know, got made up as a white person. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the, the white, story, no, take it. It's all right. You know, we're both white. <laughs> I, I had uh, no. I'm not. I'm not going to go into this story. It just it still pisses me off. No, please do. Um, yeah, we're going. Especially there. If it pisses yeah, you yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we like that kind of shit. You know, there was an organization that I was involved in, and and we had to let the head of the organization go. And one board member was fairly close to him and was sort of acting as a negotiator on his behalf. And I was, you know, among the leadership of the board and I was kind of charged with sitting in a room and talking with this guy and, and, you know, working out what the exit plan was going to be. And when I was saying, you know, well, you know, we, we need to be able to do blah, blah, blah. And he said, Hey, come on, we're both white people here. Uh, and this was at his exit interview <laughs> well it wasn't the director of the organization it was the board member that was kind of acting on his behalf and i i actually got up and said you know what i i really want this organization to survive and that's the only reason i'm not just walking out of here and telling you to go to hell <laughs> there's a billionaire who does a fair number of TED Talks and a lot of other public speaking that really addresses a lot of this stuff and is really very good. His name is Nick Hanauer. 
H-A-N-A-U-E-R. And he's definitely worth worth looking at. The the first one that I ever saw, and I, I think it's his most famous one, is they're coming with pitchforks. You know, he's saying essentially to his fellow billionaires, look, you give me a million dollars. I am not going to buy 10,000 pairs of blue jeans. I'm going to buy three or four and I'm going to put the change in, you know, my offshore bank account or I'm going to buy stock with or whatever, you know. You give that money to 10,000 people and they can each go out and buy a couple of pairs of blue jeans. That has a lot more economic impact. And, and this is where, you know, going to that, the differentiation in pay between lower end workers and higher end workers, it goes to student loan debt where people are, are saddled with paying these huge student loan payments and can't afford to get other stuff. You know, if we address that kind of stuff and get money in these people's pockets, it is better for the economy as a whole. I think that also financial literacy is really important, too, because if they have this money, you can buy jeans. But what if they don't want to just be buying jeans the rest of their life, hoping that a rich person gives them money for it? What if they want to grow their wealth? Yeah. What if they want to buy into the company that makes the jeans? Yeah. Or buy into the company that runs the online service that lets them custom fit their jeans or whatever. Absolutely right. Financial literacy. uh, Yeah, that's another whole subject that we didn't didn't really get into. But, you know, in in a market economy, you know, it's ownership that builds wealth. Well, and financial literacy is one aspect of it. But LeJohn could be the most financially astute person ever. When is he going to catch up? When is he going to stop treading water to the point where he can wade through? The point is, I remember it was on the news or something and they showed this. It was one of the saddest things I've ever seen. And they're talking to this this older guy. He's black. And and he goes, my kids aren't going to be rich. They're not good at basketball and they don't know how to rap. And he wasn't being funny. No, he's being dead serious in the black community. Your ticket to wealth is some kind of celebrity through sports or through music or maybe acting or something. This is why I'm an actor. Because if you're trying to get ahead by investments and things like that, you might as well hold your breath till you pass out. Right. And, and speaking of financial literacy, I grew up in the Cleveland public school system. <laughs> so when I got to college and when I got to a, um, a college campus where the, the black population was maybe maybe 7% and I'm taking these classes and they're dishing out terms and everything as far as the financial world. I'm sitting here like, this is fucking German, Cantonese. I have no idea what they're talking about. And then you ask for the definition and then in the definition, they're all words that you also don't know. Exactly. Seriously. (laughs) I mean, stuff that just has never been covered. I'm talking about simply really understanding how to write a check. Do you understand K through 12? That was never taught. Even then, like I went to suburban schools and you learn how to you do learn how to write a check. But that's not financial literacy. That's how to write a fucking check to like give some money away as opposed to being like, what's a savings account? What's a high yield savings account? What are timelines? How do you do stock? What the fuck is stock? (laughs) So so would it benefit the overall system that wants to keep? a certain demographic of people down to not even teach them the shit in the first place. I mean, we don't control the, the, the school curriculum. I go there and I am taught what you want me to learn. Think about that. Yeah. Whatever I learn in school in this particular pocket of a school system, which has primarily you know, brown and, and black faces, we're going to teach you what we want you to know. Damn. That sucks. And it's, yeah. you know, 
it, it goes to a lot of the stuff that's taught at home as well. It's that multi-generational transfer of wealth that if your grandparents, you know, even if they were working folks, if they had that financial literacy and passed that on, you are benefiting. You know, it's generation once its children to be living better than than they are. And we're entering the era where that is no longer necessarily the case. Oh, absolutely right. And it's not because this next generation is just lazy. And, and I think every generation says that about the youngins. Yeah. They're just lazy fuckers. They're trying to do that volunteer work on the couch. They're still shitting in their diapers. Oh, oh no. Who's going to buy my McMansion? Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that, that actually is something in the long term that, that you know, a free market does affect. It goes too far. You get these people putting hundreds of thousands of dollars into these suburban McMansions, and then they don't have a generation coming along that will be able to buy them. And what happens to them? If they're not earning enough money, if, if they're having to pay most of their disposable income on student loans or on health care. Well, and there's the key Turn word. it into prisons. There's the key word, <laughs> disposable income. Disposable income right. is what separates the classes. Because it's not how much do you earn. Because what you earn is in context to what you owe, even if you're financially smart. If you're making six figures on the West Coast, you're not necessarily doing well, depending on what that number is and where you live. If you're making six figures in Northeast Ohio, you're probably doing okay. It's all about that disposable income. And I mean true disposable income, not I just decided not to pay my bills this month and go get a <laughs> PS5. I mean like yeah. true disposable income. I actually want to go around because you're talking about a generational thing. I'll share mine first. I was always taught to save. It was like spend a little, save everything else possible, you know, after you've paid your bills. So I was actually raised very financially responsible. Had I not been raised that way, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. So I, I, I have gratitude for the fact. In fact, my parents were stingier than I am now. I've decided as an adult, there's a balance with, I want to enjoy life, not in my last maybe five years, <laughs> you know, while I have my savings, because I might not even make it that long. So one of the investments that I've decided to make, it's an emotional investment, you know, vacation, memories, memories do last forever. Lindsay and I have gone on so many vacations and that to me is so much more important, but we only do that if we're able to still put money in savings simultaneously or invest it in our in our retirements. Anyway, that's my story. That That's how I was raised. But I was also, I had an advantage. We were by no means rich. I think we were actually lower middle class at best, but we were white. So we had, you know, we had a leg up. Yeah, I get it. Um, I, The first thing I think about when that question is posed is financial literacy. And I can not remember financial talks in my household. Was there anything that indirectly taught you how to handle money? Like, did because my parents didn't necessarily sit down and say these things. Yeah. It's just kind of what I learned just from kind of you, watching. Yeah, just from watching, right? Yeah. And I just watched the struggle. Between birth and high school graduation, I think I lived in 13 different places. Probably evicted from nine of them. I can remember easily. Um, and this, this isn't, the, you know, the woe is the John Wood story. No, it's not. It's just, it was just the reality, you know? Having seen the struggle, when you're so busy trying to just make it, there almost isn't even time to educate on how to make it better. You know, that's what it's like yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Here's a tip. <laughs> Stop crying. Hurry up. Pack your things. And, and as we're joking, that's pretty much what it was. Yeah. It was like, yeah. hey, shut up with that shit and, and, and grab a box. Yeah. 
because it's time to move on to the next location. Yeah, when I'm stressed, I go to my uh, beach house in Malibu, <laughs> yeah. and I just take a I just take a me day. <laughs> and we were stressed; we just kicked it with roaches. So, how does that impact you today? One thing that people of color, especially in the black community, do so much that I hate is I had to struggle. Shit, you struggle too. I can't stand that. And me personally, I make it my business for that not to be the case. Okay. If I had to struggle financially, I'm going to figure out the best possible ways that my children don't have to struggle financially because it's not, it doesn't have to be this way. I, I don't believe in that. I got my ass kicked. You should get your ass kicked too mentality. I don't believe in it. Yeah. I, I walked uphill both ways. It's like, just, just appreciate that you're walking on a, a lower incline. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you're the, the grandparent or the great grandparent that some of us lucky white people had. I dig it. You know, Joe, how about you? You're a woman. All you have to do is learn how to marry a rich man. Yeah. I well, my father died when I was three and I we were on food stamps for like six months and I think it must have been ingrained in me that we needed money. So I was a very entrepreneurial spirit when I was a child, like sweeping garages, lemonade stands. Anytime there was like a construction zone, I was setting up a lemonade stand. <laughs> no, I made money, but um, I didn't really know anything about financial literacy, like how to actually save it. And I think I thought that, oh, if I just work hard like I am now, I'll be okay. But as a woman, I'm chatty and opinionated, um, which has turned into an issue. Um, it's great for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, great for the podcast. <laughs> but as a freelancer with a name that is not American, um, I don't get hired as much, I notice. And I don't, it's tough because you can't just say it's because. Of this or that when you're a freelancer. So I was just taught that we were poor and that I had to work hard. And I thought that working hard would work out. But apparently there are a lot of other barriers. And that's capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Like you just you just defined it. It, But one thing for certain that I and I got to pick up on what you said that I've learned is it's so much more important to have a bank full of memories than it is a bank full of money. Because if you work hard. Money buys you (laughs) money buys you those memories, though. Not necessarily. Listen, we all need money. There's no secret about that. I can just harken back to the days I'm talking about even last week where I, me and my children have done absolutely nothing that it didn't cost us 10 cents. And we had the best times of our lives. That's what I'm talking about. And don't get me wrong. Work hard, play harder. That, that, that's my motto. Um, Cause I don't believe in working just to pay bills. That's bullshit. Work hard, play harder. He just doesn't believe in paying bills. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has time for that shit. But, but yeah, I'm with you as far as the memories are concerned. And I think in that process, as time has gone on, it has made me appreciate the dollars earned more. Because, yes, I can have the money and everything. We can do things with this money. But at the same time, we can sit in the living room and just talk about us and just be amongst us. And that's what's going to be buried with us. Hate to overgeneralize here, but the the reality is there's a lot of people who are very conservative, who are so afraid of socialism, uh, who also fall into the Christian faith. And I think a lot of us in this conversation right now would call themselves Christians. And there is the verse about Jesus saying that there's a better chance of a camel passing through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. Obviously, if you interpret that literally, it's like money's bad. It's not that money's bad. But I think it goes to what you're saying, LeJohn. If you prioritize money above all else, if you become so wealthy that you can't even spend the money you have, but you're unwilling to share it, you have laid out your life in the wrong way. To me, those memories are important. Loving people is important. Like LeJohn, if you're hurting and need $5, 
I feel good about giving you that $5. Even though to you that might be insignificant to me, I'm like, man, I helped somebody today. There is no better feeling than that in the world. So I actually need $10. But, okay. Yeah, yeah, I could use a little bit more. Like I that. said five. <laughs> we already established you're a whore. <laughs> Just talking price now. It's not about wealth. It's about what you do with that money. And if you are selfish as a white male, it is our job to help others catch up in this in this monopoly game. To give LeJohn a second, one of our fifth dice. What? <laughs> you know? Five? God <laughs> damn it. That little like curled up ball of extra Kleenex doesn't have to be his piece anymore. Now he can have the shoe. <laughs> and, and when he lands on the spot with the cop, make sure the cop doesn't start beating him. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um so Adam Smith, oh, the true father of, of capitalism. Uh, yeah, of capitalism. In the Wealth of Nations, he wrote that in vigorously pursuing our own self-interest in a market system, we are led as if by an invisible hand to promote the prosperity of others. However, I feel like people run away with that and saying like, "Oh, greed is good, and it's good to be selfish." But in his book, The Theory of moral sentiments, he makes it clear that for capitalism to actually succeed, selfishness needs to be tempered with an equally powerful inclination towards cooperation, empathy, and trust. Everyone wants to do well and survive and succeed, and that's totally fine. And we'll all do better if everyone is doing well. It's like a basketball team. You don't want one awesome player and then like four shitty players. <laughs> you want everyone to be good. <laughs> like competition is a good thing, but it doesn't have to be cutthroat competition always. Right. Um, for me, it's real simple. We all want a piece of the pie. Some people can just be satisfied with just give me my slice. If you're rational enough, you don't need the whole damn pie. Don't block my path from getting my slice and don't be satisfied with just me being eligible for crumbs. That's it. I do like that. And, and that helps me tie up this too, that what a capitalist economy should be about is making a bigger pie, making sure the pie grows and that everybody has a fair shot at getting their piece of the pie. Yeah. Yeah. Here's to eating that big ass pie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tom, thank you so much. This was awesome, man. I, I learned a lot and I gained a lot. And uh, yeah, you're, you're great. So I really appreciate your time, sir. It was great to be here with you all. That wraps up another episode. What did you think? Let us know. Shoot us an email, leave us a rating, write us a review, and subscribe. And don't forget to share with your friends and family, especially your angry uncle who needs to hear this the most. Big thanks to Alicia Spurlock. You can find her on all social media at her name, Alicia Spurlock, S-P-U-R-L-O-C-K. A pop artist and heavily inspired by Taylor Swift. That's Alicia. And thanks again to Akron Coffee Roasters for the awesome caffeine fix of the day. You can go to Akron.coffee, Instagram at Akron Coffee Roasters, or Facebook at Akron Coffee. Thank you, Akron Coffee Roasters. Thanks, Prince Eric. Well, we just went there. Now you can go to thegoingtherepodcast.com for links to our socials and all the places you can hear this podcast. This podcast is made possible by its hosts and Frame One Media in association with Lindsey Baker, Tyler Kubisti, Michael Madgar, Joe Cali, and Bobby Thomas. 